This is Asia Insight. Asia policy in a pod. Welcome to the Asia Insight podcast from the National Bureau of Asian Research. I'm Doug Strube, Assistant Director of NBR's Center for Innovation, Trade, and Strategy. In this episode, NBR Counselor Charles Bustani leads a discussion on Indo-Pacific trade with Wendy Cutler and Robert Holliman. The conversation examines developments in regional trade agreements, how the lack of U.S. participation in many of these agreements is contributing to increased Chinese influence in the region, and how the Biden administration's proposed Indo-Pacific economic framework could provide the United States an avenue to reinvigorate its economic engagement in the region. And with that, over to you, Charles. Welcome to NBR's podcast. Uh, My name is Charles Bustani. I'm a former member of Congress and also a counselor at NBR, and I have the great honor of moderating this podcast today. I'm very pleased to have two very distinguished speakers today, panelists, uh, friends joining us. They're terrifically qualified to, to opine on this, on this particular subject. First, we have Wendy Cutler, Vice President and Managing Director of the Washington Office of the Asia Society Policy Institute. Wendy brings three decades of experience, deep experience as a trade negotiator at USTR, and also served as acting Deputy USTR. Robert Holloman is President and CEO of Kroll and Mooring International. He's a renowned trade lawyer, uh, well-known in trade circles, and a former Deputy USTR with the rank of ambassador. So welcome to both of you. Uh, this is sort of a reunion. We did this a year ago, I think, roughly, and um, I had a good time discussing the prospects for trade for the Biden administration. And I think we can almost start where we left off in many respects. Um, it's quite interesting because now we're in the, you know, in the second year of the Biden administration, following four years of the previous administration. And despite the introduction of this Indo-Pacific economic framework for which details are lacking, it's still really unclear what form trade and broader economic engagement in the Indo-Pacific will take at this point in time. It's certainly a dynamic region. And in my view, I think we we really run the risk of falling behind, despite the fact that the Biden administration has enhanced its its, uh, engagement through multilateral or plurilateral uh, organizations, international organizations like APEC and ASEAN. You know, clearly, where are we going with trade? How how is this affecting U.S. influence in the Indo-Pacific? And are we providing an open lane for China to set rules and norms in the region? So let's start with that question. Are we falling behind? Are we in a position of where we're losing opportunity for influence in the region and and the confidence of our allies in the region? Wendy, you want to start with that? Well, sure. And Charles, great to be with you and Robert again. A lot to talk about today. Um, Yes, I think we're not only losing our influence, but we're also losing a lot of economic opportunity and in one of the most dynamic regions of the world and one that's, you know, um, just full of innovation, new ideas, new products, new technologies. We, since we've exited TPP, we have created a void in leadership. China has tried to fill this void. I don't think they've been totally successful, but they've been very active including by expressing their interest in joining the CPTPP, 
as well as the digital economic partnership um, arrangement. So, you know, it's, it's a different landscape in Asia these days. Folks aren't waiting for the United States. They're not on hold waiting for us to come forward with, um, you know, with, with our initiatives. But yet, I do sense that they very much welcome um, the United States stepping up its engagement and are waiting to see the contents of the new Indo-Pacific economic framework. Robert? Yeah, I agree very much with, with Wendy's perspective on this, which is that we uh, have definitely lost opportunities, and we've definitely lost opportunities in a way that uh, does not serve the interest of the United States, either in terms of our foreign policy, in terms of U.S. economics, or in terms of U.S. citizens and workers. You know, it begs the question of, you know, how did we get here? And I really think that this is a question that goes well beyond the Biden administration. You know, this is really, I think, a, a function of, of, of the overall political situation in the United States which makes it very difficult for the U.S. to uh, have new binding trade agreements. In fact, one of the things I'll say is that, you know, one of the things I'll say is that, you know, the last new trade agreement that was new was essentially one that Wendy helped lead the negotiation on, which was the U.S.-Korea Free Trade Agreement. And if you think about that, Wendy, I think that concluded in 2007. There were a few adjustments to it afterwards. But that's the last new trade agreement that the U.S. struck that has become law and that has gone into effect. You know, the USMCA was a very different thing because of existing. And so I think the U.S. is now looking to see how do we get back in the game in light of the political realities that exist in the U.S. Congress and in the White House. And it's not just you know, the political Robert, realities, it's political constraints, right? Exactly. And, and in shaping the IPAF, the administration has been clear that they don't want to seek the approval of Congress, which means what they put forward in this initiative will need to be consistent with U.S. law and regulations. And that will be a limitation in many respects in terms of really moving forward on, on promoting standards and norms, um, dealing with a number of issues that would require Congress to, to change existing law, especially if we're certainly reducing tariffs, uh, making tariff concessions, but even in you know working on regulatory harmony and things of that nature and non-tariff barriers. So I'm really concerned about this. Um, I'm also concerned about the durability of IPEF, uh, meaning if it's an executive agreement, and we've already seen how an executive can come in um, following another, you know, following a, an administration and, and just pull an agreement. And so these are concerns I think, not only that I have, and I think all of us would probably share this, but I think our allies in the region are worried about US staying power, consistency and so forth. But you know, I, I think we have to see what IPF looks like. Uh, I know they're taking commentary right now, and we need to see what ultimately they propose. But there are some worrisome signs, uh, one being the fact that market access, as we traditionally know it, uh, is not at least is uh, something that's not going to be included based on comments I've heard so far. That could change, and I hope it does change. Well, the U.S. is shying away from trade agreements, and Robert pointed out last real new trade agreement was Korea that, Wendy, you were involved in. Um, most Indo-Pacific partners 
prioritized increased access to the U.S. market. So how are we going to deal with this, you know, in terms of getting good negotiations with IPEF if we're not going to make market access part of the part of the equation? How, how do you guys feel, uh, feel about that? Look, I also think it bears worth saying that the U.S. could either choose to do nothing or the U.S. could choose to do something. And so the IPEF is something that is, in my view, it's actually well tuned to domestic considerations here in the United States. Clearly, the U.S. will be able to demand less in the context of IPEF negotiations than the U.S. would be able to do in the context of a traditional negotiation, because the U.S. will simply be asking for things that are consistent with U.S. law without being able to offer the kind of incentives and give and take that would happen in a traditional trade and negotiation. But that doesn't mean that the U.S. is without tools to engage on this. One of the examples I would use is the tools around the elements around the digital economy, which we know from both USTR and from commerce is going to be a part of the IPEF negotiations. So some of us, I would be one, would rather see the U.S. simply join some of the existing agreements like the Digital Economy Partnership Agreement. But the decision, you know, for the moment is not to do that. So we'll look at it in the context of IPEF. But many of the issues that the U.S. will try to do in the IPEF around digital economy are, one, reinforcing of existing provisions that are in the CPTPP which the U.S. negotiated, two, they will be consistent with the Digital Economy Partnership Agreement, and three, they'll begin to take on some of the newer issues that are not in those agreements, particularly the CPTPP. And so the U.S. isn't going to be doing this alone, and we're not going to be doing it in the absence of other agreements that we can leverage, even if we're not a part of it. So I simply think the fact that the U.S. is going to be there talking about issues that matter to the U.S., working with our allies, is also a helpful way to bring other countries into the process to talk about the same basket of issues and the same principles, even if they may not be in the same vehicle. Yeah, when I think about market access, I think there are kind of two groups of countries in the Indo-Pacific region. Some that are okay with us not offering market access because in their view, the importance of getting the United States to step up its engagement is so important that they're willing to kind of accept there won't be market access. Or like, you know, the, the Singapore, Australia, and Korea, we already have FTAs with, so they already have the market access from us um, through, through, the pre, through previous agreements. But it's really those Southeast Asian countries beyond Singapore, which in my view are critical to get on board, where market access is very important. And having worked on the TPP negotiations, I mean, Vietnam stepped up to the plate on so many of our requests with respect to labor, intellectual property protection, digital economy. Why did they do it? Because they very much wanted access to our apparel and footwear market. And in return for that access, which you know we negotiated very hard on, but we we're willing to provide them access, 
um, they were willing then to accept rules that even we were surprised that they, they went as far as they did in terms of their receptivity. So I think um, that will be a challenge to get Southeast Asian countries on board without market access. Although um, I understand the administration is working hard to think of other incentives, other carrots that might work here. And for example, funding for infrastructure projects, capacity building, technical assistance funds. Maybe there's something with respect to trade facilitation that will make it easier to operate in our market, maybe not to technically access it. So again, what you said earlier, Charles, we don't know the details yet, but I know through my conversations that the administration is busy thinking about other incentives beyond market access. Yeah, I think that's going to be important in this. And I want to follow up on, on your comments, Wendy, and then we'll go back to Robert's uh, comments about digital trade. And one of the things I've heard from some of the Southeast Asian countries is, you know, the concerns about being pulled between the United States and China in this. And if IPEF is sort of marketed, pushed as an anti-China coalition, does that hurt our opportunity to bring the ASEAN, Southeast Asian countries into the fold on this? Do we have enough uh, with IPEF? And I guess it's hard to say, we don't know the details yet, but will it be enough to compete with RCEP and with CPTPP where uh, you know, Southeast Asian countries are expressing interest? Is this gonna be enough or is it you know, not enough and too late? And, and does the anti-China push on this uh, make some of these Southeast Asian countries skittish? Well, I think the administration has been trying hard to put forward an affirmative agenda, a positive agenda of what, you know, the norms, the standards, the cooperation that they're seeking in the Indo-Pacific versus kind of packaging this as an anti-China initiative. Um, that said, um, you know, there are different conversations you have in the region than you have at home. And at home, I think the anti-China angle seems to work better to get domestic support for this initiative. So it's a very kind of, um, you know, difficult path the administration needs to navigate in trying to sell this initiative domestically um, and regionally. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think it's going to be a, a little tightrope act, uh, act to try to do that. And Robert, I want to go back to digital trade for a moment and, and have you expound a little bit on some of the main challenges facing the United States in securing an Indo-Pacific digital trade agreement. And certainly, Wendy, I want your comments on this too. And then, and then also, let's talk a little bit about the modular approach, which uh, we're seeing in DEPA. Uh, it's being proposed in IPEF. And is that a is that a, a fairly effective way of dealing with some of these issues uh, as things change rapidly? You know, issues are coming up, especially in the technology space. So, Robert, if you could start off with uh, digital trade, some of the barriers, the impediments, challenges we're facing, and then comment a little bit on the modular approach. Great question. Probably two parts of thinking about that. You know, one is that the digital trade provisions, you know, I think the challenge and the opportunity is to go above and beyond the digital trade provisions that the U.S. helped negotiate in the what's now the CPTPP, which is if it's simply reinforcing what's in that agreement, 
then um, there may not be enough new parties to the IPEF to effectively make that meaningful. So this has to be really taking, you know, that agreement that is now several years old, building upon it by adding some of the provisions that would have been the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, some of the provisions in the U.S.-Japan digital agreement, but really going beyond that. I think one of the biggest areas is how to deal with the issues around privacy and both protection of personal privacy, raising the standards for protection of privacy, at the same time reducing barriers um, to trade, disguise barriers to trade. So I think there's a real leadership opportunity here and a necessity for the U.S. to engage. Secondly, the modular approach, I think that's workable. Uh, I think you know one of the things that we saw in the Digital Economy Partnership Agreement was really pointing out, I think really for the first time, that you could have parties to an agreement. And by the way, it's not a traditional trade agreement either, but to have parties to an agreement where there was a general sense of common elements, but other issues like emergence of artificial intelligence and how to deal with those that would be pretty mature to set rules around, but that were important areas for engagement of the parties. And I think that IPEF is modular in part by allowing for that. At the same time, recognizing that some of the countries that will be part of this discussion with the US may have different capacity at the present time to enter into particular elements. And so rather than requiring everybody to be part of everything from day one, this allows some flexibility. And I think if we've learned anything over the challenges around trade in the United States in recent years, it's that we have to have flexible approaches to deal with this, that the traditional ways of looking at these that are sort of large comprehensive agreements, while they have many attributes, they have not succeeded politically. And I think we need to be thinking, and I think these are good approaches to new, to, to new ways of thinking through trade or at least economic agreements. Wendy? Yeah, so a couple of points um, to build on what Robert just said. I see two big challenges on the digital front. The first is translating the concerns and the priorities of workers and consumers into, provi into provisions that um, you know, could be part of our digital initiative in the region. And my understanding is the administration has been consulting widely with new types of stakeholders to try and balance this agreement and make sure that it does um, work in the interest of small businesses, of consumers, of workers. So that's number one. Number two, I think the big challenge is going to be that as currently constructed, digital is going to be part of the trade pillar of IPEF that will be led by USTR. And USTR's approach here is you can't cherry pick within the trade pillar of what you want to do and what you don't want to do. So if you want to do digital, then you also need to do labor, environment, good regulatory practices, competition policy, et cetera. A number of countries are urging the administration to kind of free digital and liberate it from, from the trade pillar and let it stand on its own. Um, the administration, um, I think, based on consultations they're having with Congress, don't feel comfortable doing that at this point. Um, who knows, down the road they might reconsider. On the modular approach, I couldn't agree more with Robert. I think flexibility is important, particularly if you want to attract countries 
beyond what I would call our good friends, the, the folks that already kind of agree with what we're putting forward. And if we're putting forward an initiative that just um, attracts our, you know, the usual suspects of Japan, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, and Korea, and they already live up to all this stuff, you have to wonder then what's the value added? Um, I'm not saying there's no value added, but you, you know, you need to question what the impact will be. If you can, again, attract some countries in either Southeast Asia or South Asia, that's, you know, then, then you're making progress. And I think in order to attract those countries, flexibility in the modular approach makes sense. But, you know, I also understand concerns with that approach because the challenge then is who's cherry picking and it's the countries that, you know, are looking at the initiative. Let's say they want to do infrastructure because there's money associated with that, but they don't want to do labor, but maybe they want to do supply chains because then they can get access to our market. Uh, you know, so it's it's not, um, you know, a hun- I, there, there's 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 costs and benefits that need to be evaluated in the approach. But overall, when I evaluate the cost and benefits, I think it's the right approach for the, you know, for the right time, at the right time. Yeah, yeah, I'm struck by this too. Um, And both of you have negotiated trade agreements and have been in deep into the details and understand the complexity of of a plurilateral type of negotiation. With this, with IPEF, we're gonna have commerce handling three of the pillars and USTR handling the trade pillar, but there are, there are interactions in these. And, and then when you're trying to do trade-offs, it seems to me without somebody really coordinating this, it, it's, it, the negotiations could get very, very unwieldy. Could you comment on that? I, you know, I think, I mean, I, I've thought about this a little bit and should there be somebody who sort of stands above commerce and USTR in a sense to coordinate the effort? Well, I, look, I, I, I hope that it becomes clear throughout this process that it's really the White House and the president who is helping kind of determine where this goes and how this gets laid out. And I think if that happens, whether it's then a person who reports directly to the president or his two cabinet secretaries who report to him, then I think you can get the coordination. So I, I agree completely that this has to be viewed something as something that's whole of government. I think there are questions to date that there are even some who question why are there only two agencies of the U.S. government, a department and USTR who are part of this? What's, what about Treasury? What about the role of state? I mean, there are a lot of parties who, who will have interest in this. At the end of the day, though, for this to be successful and for this to be viewed as having meaning by the partners, you know, the president will have to be associated closely with this. And this will have to be something where it reaches that level. Certainly every trade negotiation that Wendy's been part of and the ones that I've been part of in my life have also all involved presidential leadership. And I fully anticipate that we will see all of that from President Biden, certainly as he laid out an Indo-Pacific overall framework. He talked about this. He talked about this recently uh, with uh, Prime Minister Modi. So, you know, I think we have that leadership. The proof will be in how it works on a day-to-day basis. But at the end of the day, it has to have that signature and support at the highest levels within the U.S. government. I would just add for it to work, USTR and Commerce are going to have to coordinate very closely. 
at senior levels, but also at the working level. And if there's any confusion for our trading partners, you know, in terms of messages they're getting or what they're being asked to do or not asked to do, you know, that could affect the success of this initiative. I think my colleagues at Commerce and USTR understand this, but also as a longtime bureaucrat, I would also say easier said than done. <laughs> so we'll have to watch this closely. And also thinking about IPEF, this really is a framework. So it's going to have a lot of flexibility in it, but it's it's a framework in which to deal with a lot of rapidly moving parts. And we don't know where the politics of the country is going to go into the future, but is this a potential opening or sort of a venue to move us toward a more standard kind of trade agreement in the future? Um, it seems to me we're not foreclosing on that. Uh, we're just not talking about it. Uh, any any views on that? So I think there are elements, though, in this that, for example, climate. I'm confident the U.S. is not going to agree to anything that would be binding on the U.S. that we would be un be unable to meet under existing law. On the other hand, because of the divisions in Congress, climate has been an area that has largely been viewed as off limits for trade negotiations. And so, you know, hopefully this is an area where we can actually begin to take on what is truly a challenge, but in a way that, while not politically acceptable to everybody, is at least a better way to start talking about cooperation and how we work together on what most everybody identifies as an issue, even if not everybody agrees on what it should mean in terms of mandates on the American people or business. And and so I look, I, I guess I'm I'm sort of the, the glass half full guy, which is I think it allows the US to negotiate and talk about this and reach common ground in a way that we were essentially prohibited from doing in the context of our TPP discussions. So I think in that sense, it's it's right for the time and right for the kind of challenges we're dealing with. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you on that. I think um, there'll be some early harvest from this, but it's a framework that can lead us to, to other things down the line, depending on which direction you know, countries take and, and how we position ourselves. The key point is to be fully engaged again. And I think the administration did something like this with Europe, uh, with the Trade and Technology Council, by standing that up, it, it created a forum to start really talking about difficult issues. They've had her early harvest, and then hopefully it'll lead to the future, future real, real substantive uh, developments and agreements whether it's in you know the digital world or uh, investment and trade, so hopefully hopefully we'll see um, you know something positive coming out of this in the long run. Let me pivot to politics for just a minute uh, as our last topic. Obviously, I dealt with it in Congress. Uh, the politics of trade are really difficult. The two of you uh, at USTR had to deal with the politics of Congress um, and the politics within the country as you worked on trade deals and tried to, to strike the right balance. We're in a difficult place right now in many respects. And this is a time when we really need to see presidential leadership on trade. I'm worried because I've seen with the current Republican Party more protectionism and economic nationalism than I've ever seen. Those elements were there when I served, but it's worse now. 
And of course, there have been uh, protectionist elements that have been pretty solidly entrenched within the Democratic Party, especially uh, among uh, some of the labor groups and so forth. We, we, we don't have trade promotion authority now. It's unlikely that we could pass it given the current politics. H how do we start to break that cycle uh, because I think, in my view, trade has been blamed for so many of the country's ills where it really has no impact. I mean, trade's really about expanding markets and creating economic connectivity that hopefully brings uh, all parties to, a, to a, an acceptable uh, outcome. I think trade, trade policy, in effect, has been scapegoated in all of this. And how do we change that dynamic? How do we, I mean, I'd like to see the president spend a little bit of political capital in trying to do that. Maybe he will uh, with time. What are your thoughts on that? Well, the one area that gives me some degree of optimism is recent polling on trade and the Gallup poll in particular, the numbers are off the charts in terms of support for, you know, what it's called free and fair trade with, with support from Democrats being much stronger than Republicans. I had to take a double, I always have to take a double take when I see that, because throughout my career, the Republicans were really the pro, you know, trade party, pro-business party. But there's a disconnect between the polling and what's going on in Congress. And I think this is one of those issues where both parties, their their views all over the map in in each party about trade. I mean, when I go to the Hill and talk to different members these days, some are, are, are badgering me, um, you know, for not being more ambitious and insisting that we rejoin the CPTPP. Others think the IPEF is going way too far. Um, you know, some think that um, market access should be off the table. Others, you know, and we saw this in Catherine Tai's um, testimony just last week, others, Republicans and Democrats, we're criticizing her for not offering market access because that means no market access for our exporters in return. So it's a very confusing time. And you know, one thing I always remember at USTR and working on trade agreements towards the end, our congressional office would always, you know, sit down and kind of count the votes. So for any new proposal we put forward or we, you know, we took off the table we would say, oh, that gets us three votes, we lose four votes. They, they kind of had a good sense how folks were gonna come out on these issues. Some of it was you know, based on track records and voting, but some of it was just based on um, you know, trying to just getting to know the member and figuring out where they were in the party. But today, I bet you no one, no one, even the best congressional strategist, analyst, maybe you, Charles, could do this, but I, I, how could you even count the votes if you were to do a trade agreement these days and who would support it and who would oppose it? <laughs> yeah, I think you're right, Wendy. Uh, you know, in fact, the turnover in Congress has been so tremendous. I mean, in the House alone, 50 percent of the members came in uh, on the Republican side since the 2016 election. They're new and we're going to see big turnover in this cycle. And even even in with the current Congress, I think it's 39% of the current Democrats are new. So trade requires education. Uh, it's complex, it's technical. In my view, is one of the most technical issues uh, that we dealt with on the Hill. And so I think it's poorly understood, uh, even among members who've been around for a while. And so we all have our work cut out for us. Uh, if we're gonna continue to, to have a trade policy, uh, we're gonna have to spend a lot of time on the Hill 
trying to educate members uh, on the merits of, of trade policy. Robert, do you have any comments yeah. on all this? Yeah, I'll, I'll comment. I, you know, I'll say as somebody who uh, has never run for elective office, but sort of has a lot of friends up there and watches it and people. One, I doubt that any of these new members of Congress in either party was elected on a pro-trade platform. So I think one of the issues is that sort of no one or very few are elected based on their sort of pro-trade views. So if that's the, where we are, then we kind of have to meet the challenge where it exists, which is how do you try to frame what the opportunity is around trade, try to address challenges of trade that existed in the past, which is, you know, we typically looked at things like trade adjustment assistance and said that that would offset any of the dislocations, very few of those because of trade agreements, but broadly because of global competition. That was ultimately sort of inadequate to address some of the systemic challenges in the U.S. And then you end up with a population, I think, of, of younger people who I think would be the most pro-trade because they are the most the biggest beneficiaries of trade, whether they're carrying a mobile phone or the clothes they wear or their life, just their connectivity. And how do you try to build a system of confidence? And then that the system is not simply a repackaged version of what their parents or grandparents believe, but in fact, something that works in the modern world. So I think there are multiple parts of this, of how you tackle it. But I think at the end of the day, we need to sort of rebuild America, rebuild confidence. I think, two, we need to listen and try to understand what the domestic needs are. And finally, I think we need to position trade and trade agreements, not simply as something that is good economics for the United States, but something that is fundamental for U.S. influence around the world, whether it's foreign policy or as an augment to U.S. military strength. And so I think it's critical to do all of those. And while none of us would want to be in the position that we're in right now, it is the reality, and we need to build from that going forward. It, maybe I can add one more point to to Rob, what Robert just said, and that is I think we really need to educate people. And Charles, you were getting at this through the question on what trade agreements are equipped to do and what they're not the vehicle for achieving. Because through the years, like so much baggage was put on trade agreements that were going to solve every problem or blamed for every problem. And, you know, they have their limits. They can, they, they can if, if done correctly, they can augment and supplement good domestic policy and other foreign policy to help our economy, to up our influence in the world, and to allow us, you know, to be in a position to shape the regional and global rules. But once you start loading them up with, you know, too many unrealistic expectations, you're kind of doomed for failure. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of wisdom in, in your comments there, both of you, on, on the politics of this. Clearly, trade has been scapegoated uh, for all of our woes, and changing that narrative is going to be a challenge. But it starts with good domestic policy in creating space for trade and putting it in the right position, as both of you have said, that it's not only uh, hopefully good economics, it's important for our foreign policy and for promoting our values around the world as well. So um, with that, I think uh, we've, we've laid out a framework 
for the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework and uh, hope that the administration has success in this uh, going forward. I'll be interested in seeing how they manage all the, the thousand plus comments they've gotten on what this should encompass. Uh, sure, I'm sure we'll all be paying close attention to it and looking for much more detail as to what's going to come out. And with that, uh, I don't know if either of you have anything in closing you want to say, or uh, we can close up here. I'll just express my thanks. Charles, good to be with you. Wendy, good to be with you as well. And thanks, NBR, for helping uh, facilitate this discussion. Uh, always a pleasure to be part of this and to be moving the ball forward. Same here, and let's reconnect um, in a bit of time once the IPEF is um, rolled out and see if it, if, um, you know, it meets our expectations and is up to the challenges that we identified. Well, with that, uh, NBR will be up to, the, up to your request, and I hope we can convene this, this group again to continue the discussion. Thank you very much, Wendy, Robert, for your expertise and time. Uh, we really appreciate it. Asia Insight Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asia Insight.